Hello, and welcome to the Event Safety Podcast. I'm Danielle Hernandez, and today I'm joined with the most excellent Richard Kadena. Richard Kadena is an ETCP recognized trainer and an ETCP certified entertainment electrician. I'm so much better when I'm not reading. Um, (laughs) With 36 years of experience in the entertainment lighting industry, he's an author of some most excellent books, such as Electricity for Entertainment Electricians. And he's a technical writer for Plaza. He's appeared in Protocol. And part of the reason that I asked him to join me today was he just recently had an article come out uh, that is talks about meters. And I was like, whoa, I want to talk about that. So Richard, thanks for joining me today. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We're gonna have a lot of fun today. And it was great to see everybody at the Safety Summit, by the way, last, what was it, April? Um, yeah, this past yeah. spring, it was it was, yeah. it was a lot of fun. I was so happy to see people again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was awesome. It was, it was great. Yeah. So I don't want to like summarize your article for you. And I know you have some thoughts, but the, the main, the, like the punchline about this is that you have to know what your gear is actually doing and some gear will lie to you. Right? Right. Exactly. And then you got yeah. into a whole bunch of the science behind why that is so. At that part, I had to read three times. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Um, but, you know, the, the main part was that uh, if you have a meter that is not labeled a true RMS reader, that you shouldn't trust what it's telling you? Exactly. And, okay. uh, you know, it's, it's a little bit tricky because there's basically two different types of meters. There's an average reading meter and there's a true RMS reading meter. And an average reading meter will give you accurate results as long as you have certain types of equipment. Well, that would be things that are that uh, that we mostly don't use anymore, like tungsten lamps. You know, if you have, uh, yeah, right. So, so I, have, I was wondering, I was like, so why do they exist? You know, it's like, well, is this the sort a, of thing people use question. in their garage? Or <laughs> yeah, uh, that the question has been raised. I think Matt Carlson recently asked me that. And uh, somebody else asked me that, but the, uh, the, the bottom line is that if you have both kinds of meters, now you can figure some more things out. So that's, oh. that sounds kind of cryptic, but here's how it works is that an, a true RMS reading meter will read harmonics an average reading meter will not. How do you know if you have harmonics? Well, you can spend a lot of money on a very expensive power quality meter. Or maybe you can get a true RMS reading meter and an average reading meter and read the same conductor. And the difference between the two would be the harmonics. So, and um, there's oh, lots of clever. things. Yeah, it, it, yeah, well, it, it took me years to put that together, to figure that out, you know, I'm, I'm, but I'm slow, you know, um, so, but you, um, you wrote a thing that I read multiple times and I'm still not sure I get all the nuance of, so I wouldn't put you in the slow category. So can you remind <laughs> our listeners what harmonics are and why it matters? Sure. Yeah, Other than so, it messes up the reading on the meter, which is one thing right, it does. Other than that, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, so normally when you plug something in like a light, you know, the voltage is a, is a sine wave. So that means the voltage rises and the voltage falls and it rises and it falls like a sine wave, right? Now, normally when the voltage rises, then the current rises. And when the voltage falls, the current falls. So that what that means is that if the voltage is a sine wave, then so is the current. The current's drawn 
and a sine wave. But there are some types of loads that have power supplies that change the way current is drawn. So instead of drawing it in a, in a sine wave fashion, the current is drawn in pulses. It's drawing current and then it's not drawing current. It's drawing current, it's not drawing current. So, so it distorts the wave shape. So if I was putting this in like water terms, because I have a simple mind occasionally, this would be, there's a pipe coming out and instead of it being an L and the water's just turning left, there's basically a gate and it's opening and closing, opening and closing. And so exactly. it's, in essence, it's a pulse. And that means that the water yep. going down the main branch is affected because it's being pulled out. That, that's yeah? right. All yes. Right. And, and <laughs> very good, Danielle. Um, you, you're almost a certified entertainment electrician. Um, <laughs> but um, so in, as a consequence of that, see, the more distorted it is, the more harmonic content there is. And, and then as a consequence of that, when you have a lot of harmonics, it does some other things to your electrical power distribution system. Number one, even in a balanced three-phase system, you can cause, you can overload the neutral conductor. So, you know, you've got, normally you've got your, your five conductors of feeder, you've got your three hots, your ground and your neutral. And in a balanced three-phase system, because the three phases are out of three uh, phases are out of phase with each other, then the neutral current cancels out. So there's no current in the neutral. But if you have harmonics, there's a lot of current in the neutral and you can overload it. And that's a danger. So you have to monitor it closely. So would you say that these days, because we have so many things in essence with power supplies that we have, we just plan that there's a lot of load on the neutral? Well, or that there can, is some yeah. load on the neutral. <laughs> you, you should definitely monitor the neutral. Yeah, okay. I've uh, I was working a show once where I watched a guy meter the power, but he only metered the three hot conductors. And I asked him why he wasn't new, uh, metering the neutral conductor, and he said because I have a balanced three phase load, there's no current on the neutral. And I said, well, you know, just let's just check it. You know, put, you're right here, just slap your meter on. And he he was shocked. To learn I that he had <laughs> 60 amps. <laughs> yeah, well, no, no pun intended. But <laughs> he was very surprised, let's say, <laughs> to learn he had 60 amps on the neutral conductor, which is, he wasn't overloading it. But had he been overloading it, he never would have known because he didn't bother to check, didn't it. check it. So, yeah. So that's why, you know, you, you, should, you should either know if you have harmonics or you should monitor your neutral and uh, in order to really monitor it correctly, accurately, you need a true RMS reading meter. And the whole reason I wrote this article is because I was on a show, I was working a show, and I was not the, um, the electrician on the show. I was the, actually the lighting, uh, a lighting director on the show. And um, I was asked to, to check to see if we had enough uh, overhead in the electrical system to expand the system for next year. So I turned to the electrician and I said, let's go meter the, the distro. And he pulls out his meter and I looked at it and I went, uh, is this a true RMS reading meter? And he's like, nope. <laughs> I go, well, I don't know how much good it's going to do us. Cause I, you know, I have no idea. I, I, I didn't, I do know that we had a lot of LEDs. We had a lot of moving lights, which, and those are the primary, um, types of load that will have harmonics. It will generate harmonics. So that's, that, that was the whole genesis for the article. Yeah. Uh, I, I really, really enjoyed the article. I was like, whoa, that, Thank you. 
that it was a it was a, <laughs> a light bulb moment. <laughs> uh, are there other so so obviously LED lights and moving lights are uh, unknown sorts of harmonics. What about the other pieces of gear that we typically use? Like are, are there things in audio land that are doing this? Is, is video yeah, so, rigging? So in general, anything that has a computer chip in it, <laughs> you know. Yeah, isn't that everything at this point? It, exactly. <laughs> Good answer. Good answer. So see, you're getting that much closer to being certified <laughs> so to entertainment being certified electrician. Myself. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of stuff we use has the potential to generate harmonics. Now it turns out that they know how to build power supplies now where they can fix that. So those mm -hmm. are called power factor corrected. Oh. And so uh, it used to be that electronic power supplies were very expensive and they weren't very reliable. One of my first jobs in the industry was to go fix a bunch of moving lights that the power supplies had failed. And this was back in the 1980s, 1980s, somewhere in the 80s. I'm going to take in the 1980s. So did they have a mirror that wiggled? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but anyway, but the point is that out of, out of, uh, there were 16 fixtures and nine of them were the power supplies had failed in them, you know, and, the, mm -hmm. and the, they were complicated. They didn't work very well. They were expensive, you know? So it wasn't until many years later that they started getting more common. And that was primarily because of the iPhone, right? Because at that point we, they started making a bunch of um, these little switch mode power supplies to charge your phones and your computers and everything. And through economies of scale, prices came down and through experience, they got better and more reliable. And so now and just it, like that, entertainment like field that. benefits from everybody else's work and everything else. Like, wait, wait oh, yeah. feel that. We, yeah, we, yeah, exactly. So the trend continues. So, but the bottom line is that now because they're cheaper, now manufacturers are more often they're they are buying um, power supplies that are power factor corrected that don't generate harmonics. So, but there's still a lot of gear out there that does. That does. So, and lights are, are probably the most likely. Not necessarily. It can no. be digital audio amplifiers. It could be video projectors. Oh, okay. Although most video projectors that I've that I've tested are um, have very good power supplies and do not generate harmonics. But it's quite possible that they could, especially if they're older. But it could so the, be, you know anything so so this may be a, a simple question what are so i know one of the side effects of harmonics is a load on the neutral mm -hmm. are, what are other potential are there other potential things that could happen because of that load yeah yeah so um the other main thing to look out for is that harmonics generate a lot more heat than normal current so th that's because oh. harmonics are higher in frequency, which means that um, it, it, you, you have a more pronounced what's called skin effect. The skin effect means that if you have, like if you take a conductor and you cut it and you look at the cross-sectional area and look at where the current is traveling, for DC, it's through 100% of the cross-sectional area. But then as you go into AC, the higher the frequency the more the current tends to travel along the skin of the conductor, the outer skin, rather wow. than through the center. So what that means is you're using less copper to conduct, which means higher resistance, which produces more heat for the same amount of current. So therefore, yeah, think about that. 
Yeah. Think about that because if you have, say, for example, a it's an audio watt, podcast, guys. My eyes got big. That's what that was. <laughs> um, if you have a um, if you have a four aught conductor, mm-hmm. you know it's a big conductor. It's a big conductor, very heavy. But if it, it very heavy, yeah. But if you um, have high harmonic content, that means that that uh, a lot of it you're not using. You're only using the outer part of it which it's yeah. effectively acting like maybe a two-aught conductor or a number two feeder cable instead of a four-aught, which means that really you should, de- you should uh, adjust the impacity. You know, normally we say four-aught is good for, ca- for carrying 400 amps, but if you have high harmonic content, then you should probably derate it. And depending on the harmonic content, you, you should derate it up to 50%. So now instead of considering the 400 amp conductor, it's really should be treated as a 200, 200 amp conductor. Well, you guys, I think if, if you're working with this sort of thing, you now have a project <laughs> to go and figure out what you, a, what your harmonic load is and, and B what cable you're using. <laughs> right. You guys, if you haven't seen this article, go, go and chase it down. We will put a link to it in the show notes. Uh, there's some really cool graphics that I could not, I don't think I could, I couldn't easily describe them but they they show the difference in the waves with different types of power supplies that helps explain a lot of this um (laughs) yeah and and can i also say that uh there's other really good articles in that magazine Mm. Um, oh absolutely protocol magazine is a uh, quarterly journal industry journal and it's uh free completely free you can get the digital edition and get the hard copy even your mailbox uh every uh, four times a year so sign up for it, subscribe. You can yeah. go to the ESTA website to find the link. Yep. And we'll put that in the notes as well. We, we are huge fans right. of protocol and ESTA, frankly. <laughs> um, okay. So are there other tools that lie to us? <laughs> um, you know, um, there are other things that, well, actually, what what I put what I put together, Danielle, was a as a list of uh, lies, damn lies, and more lies. Okay. And Let's I'd like this. to go through them. And what I'll do is I'll toss out a question to you, or a statement. I'll, I'll toss a statement out, and I, I'd like for you to decide whether it's true, whether it's a lie, or whether it's a damn lie. Okay. <laughs> okay. You want to play along? Sure. Okay. Podcast listeners, so, don't think but, less of me by my answer. <laughs> well, th- so this is how it works. For example, if I said, my name is Michael, then you would say what? That's a damn lie. Actually, <laughs> my name is Michael. That's my middle ah! name. So <laughs> I fulled you. <laughs> you did fool me. <laughs> I'm already over everything. <laughs> That's okay. All right. Um, now, I do have a PowerPoint for my own notes, but you said there's no graphics, right? I forget. There's no graphics for this. Okay. All right. Then I'll just use this myself. Okay. So here's the first one. Let's talk about um, uh, meters. Okay. Okay. Um, Now, this is actually, we've already covered this. This was the first one. So as an example, I would have said, uh, here's the statement. It, It doesn't matter what type of multimeter you use as long as it's calibrated. Is that true or is that a lie? That's a lie. That's That's actually a damned lie. That's That's a damned lie because it has to say true RMS on it, or you don't know what you're reading. That's right. Yeah, it could it could be lying to you. So, 
Um, now, the other thing that uh, I would point out is that this, uh, this whole issue of getting your meter calibrated, you know, when you buy a meter, mm-hmm. it can, um, it should be pretty accurate, but over time it can drift. So some people send their meter out annually to get it calibrated. So you, that means you just send it back to the factory, to a, uh, a factory authorized um, center, service center, and they would basically recalibrate it. You know, they, they're going to slap a load on it and they're going to read it and then they'll adjust it so that it reads just perfectly or reads with, with great accuracy, right? And, you know, the calibration can drift over time. But in my experience, I, I feel like in our industry, I, I don't feel like I need to get my meters calibrated because number one, it costs a lot of money. You can almost buy a new meter for the price it, it takes <laughs> to get calibrated. And number two, because I do a lot of classes and workshops, I often test my meter against other people's meters and I have uh, several meters. So I test all my meters uh, every time we have a workshop. We'll put, you know, we'll set up a generator, we'll connect a feeder cable, we'll connect some load, we'll turn it on and I'll ask the whole class to put their meter on the feeder cable and we'll compare notes. And what I've found is that in general, everybody's meter is probably within, you know, three or 4% accurate, except for those, those darn average reading meters. You know, if we have <laughs> a harmonic content, they're going to be lying to us and it'll be easy to tell which is which, you know? So typically there'll be a group of meters that are all very, very close to each other. The numbers read very, very close. And then there's two or three meters that are way off. <laughs> and those, you know, are the like, average reading. This meters. is an average meter. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So, but that's so you're saying uh, calibrating wouldn't fix that because it's never going to read. That's correct. Yeah, that's right. It, yeah, it's never going to read accurate if there's harmonics. So, but some people like to get their meters calibrated. Mostly companies. Companies will send them out, and they'll pay a lot of money to get their meter their meters calibrated. And you know what? Great, more power to you. You know, companies like Disney, I think, and you know some others. Um, will get, have their meters calibrated periodically. They, they fine, probably also have economy of scale. Where true. Yeah, sending exactly. Quantity. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Here's another, um, another statement I'll throw out. So you've, you've all heard um, that you should not, if, when you set up your, your power distribution and you, you have, if you have a whole bunch of feeder cable left over, you should not coil it up. So the, the statement is don't coil your excess feeder cable because it traps heat. Is that true or is that a lie? Oh, okay. So I've definitely heard this. Yeah, I mean, okay. It's a good so, practice. so I, so I, what I was, what I was going to say was, the reason that I was told to not do it was not just heat; it was actually electrical interference. So, wow. Very, see, you're, you're so already. So I don't know if that's true or a lie. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, so I'm calling it a lie. Now, now there is an asterisk there because um, this is based on um, my observation. Again, in my, in our labs, you know, what we'll do is we'll set up a load or we'll set up a system, connect load, turn it on. And then I'll ask the class to go ahead and coil the feeder cable. Right? right. Let's see what happens. Uh, we're, we're sitting here watching it. We can babysit it, make sure nothing bad goes wrong. So we coil it up and then we, we sit there and then I'll take my infrared camera out 
and I, and I look at it with the infrared, uh, you know, camera, and I've never noticed any more heat than if it's not coiled or if it's figure eighted, right? Cause they tell you to figure eight or racetrack it or whatever. Mm -hmm. But here's what I have noticed when you coil up the feeder cable, <laughs> so first of all, you can start to feel the ground vibrate because what you've done <laughs> is you've built a giant electromagnet and it is vibrating the ground. And if you touch the feeder cable, it's, you, can, you can feel a strong vibration. And then oh. if you take your, your amp meter, now normally to, to meter amps, you have to open the jaws and clamp a cable to get a reading on it. But if you build a strong enough electromagnet with feeder cable, then you don't even have to open the jaws, just turn your meter on, put it in amps mode and put it in the center of the coil and it will read current even though you <laughs> haven't even clamped the cable yet. So that's how strong so, an electrum. So you still shouldn't coil your cable is what right. you're saying. Right, <laughs> you, you should not coil, do not coil your cable. But the reason <laughs> is that um, it creates a lot of electromagnetic interference. And that's what you said. You even used the, those exact words. So bravo for you. You know, I went to, uh, so I studied electrical engineering. And so when I came in the industry and they told me don't coil a feeder cable, I thought, well, that makes perfect sense because a giant coil is an inductor and an inductor is going to change the power factor. And I always thought that's why we don't coil feeder cable, you know, but when I, uh, it wasn't until years later that I actually started coiling the feeder cable to see what would happen. Mm -hmm. And now I have a power quality meter where I can measure power factor. And that, that tells you, you know, how much of an inductor you've built. And you know what? It, feeder cable does not make a good inductor. The insulation <laughs> is too thick. So um, the, the whole, you know, for many years, I thought that it would lower the power factor, but it didn't. So I, I was thinking wrong about that. And, you know, th that's the process of discovery. I'm, I'm not afraid to admit that I'm wrong and I was wrong for many years. Uh, but the bottom line is, yeah, don't coil your feeder cable. <laughs> <laughs> and do you have like a suggestion on how to manage the feeder cable? Well, if you have enough real estate, then you can racetrack it, meaning zigzag just, it back and forth, you know? Just on the floor. Yeah. And then if you don't have a lot of space, then you can figure eight it. Now, you know, figure eight it, figure, figure eighting it will, will create two um, coils of electromagnetism, but they're in opposite directions. So taken as a whole, the electromagnetism cancels out. However, you still have two hotspots yeah. of electromagnetic fields. So you don't want to run your signal cable anywhere near the feeder cable, you know, <laughs> right. Your you microphone get interference. <laughs> right. Exactly. Your audio cable, your video cable, even your lighting control cable, you want to keep it away from the feeder cable. Okay. Excellent. All right. Okay. Next, next one. Let's talk about GFCIs. Okay. You know, ground okay. fault circuit interrupters. You know what those are, right? I do. Those are, yeah. You, you have them in your bathroom? Well, yeah. Th let's make sure we talk because there, sure, there are people that don't. So, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the, the receptacles with the black and red test buttons, yeah, they're in your bathroom, they're in your kitchen, in your garage, in your basement, and outside. And anywhere the there's water, potentially. Anywhere. Yeah. Anywhere in the proximity of water, if you're using electricity, it should have GFCI protection because what that will do is it will detect if you have any leakage current. In other words, you know, if somebody's being shocked, then current is being diverted from the circuit away from the circuit 
and the GFCI will then interrupt the circuit and shut it off. So GFCIs are very important for electrical, especially portable power distribution. They're very important in our world and in the uh, live entertainment uh, industry, we have a recommended practice for the use of class A GFCIs in the entertainment industry, which basically says, if you're using electricity in the uh, proximity of moisture or water, it should be on GFCI protection. So, but um, there are a couple of, of things about GFCIs that you often hear. And I hear people say this all the time. Number one is that GFCIs do not work without a ground. Is that true or is it false? Danielle, you care to care to- They don't work without a, a ground? Right, they don't work. In, in other words, um, if you have if you if you have an old building with the two yeah. prong receptacles without the ground oh I see that they don't work yeah. without a ground yeah is that true or false is it a lie or is it real I think that's a lie you're right that's a lie you're batting a thousand that's great <laughs> it, it, it is a lie but it's a myth that I often hear even. The most experienced electricians will tell you this, that, oh yeah, GFCIs don't work without a ground, but they do because the way they, um, the way they function is that the, there's a sense coil that measures the difference between the outgoing current in the hot conductor and the return current in the neutral conductor. And if there's a difference, that means that some of the current is being diverted Going away from the else. circuit. Right. <laughs> and so it's, it's not enough... monitoring the ground for that current. It's monitoring exactly. the current. Exactly. If you look at the schematic diagram for a GFCI, the ground is nowhere in sight. It doesn't need the ground to work. It works just fine without a ground. Now, there is a secondary sense coil that senses if there is current on the ground. And if there is current on the ground, then it will interrupt the circuit. But guess what? If you don't have a ground, then there, how can there be any current on the ground? <laughs> so you, you don't need right. the ground for GFCI to work. So that's a damn lie. That's a damn lie. All right, we found one. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me, hold on. That, interestingly, that is not what I thought you were going to say about GFCIs. Oh, yeah? Well, there's another... There's another thing to discuss about GFCIs. You All right, I'm ready. On? I'm ready. Okay. All right, here's the next one. You can't use a GFCI with another GFCI. In other words, you can't daisy chain them. Is that true or is it not true? Hmm. Oh, the um, silence is palpable. Yeah, well, I've... <laughs> So I don't immediately know the answer. So I'm just trying to think through the, the like, mm -hmm. I think you could daisy chain them. I think the second one may trip if the first one does, but I don't, I don't actually know. I don't daisy chain GFCIs. Well, you pro I'll give you a hint. You've probably done it. You've probably done it before. Really? Yeah. Most likely you have. Or are they daisy change in people's houses? Well, in, in people's houses, um, it's it's possible. I, I did it by accident at, at my house because <laughs> You're like, I didn't mean to do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I wanted to run some um, some circuits outside the house for Christmas lights because I got tired of running extension cords. Yeah, and I wanted to ha put two duplex receptacles out there outside. 
So um, I went down and I got two receptacle boxes, duplex, two re duplex receptacles, and they're both GFCIs. And without mm -hmm. thinking about it, I hooked them up in series, you know, in, in, in uh, daisy chained them. And you know what? They work just fine, you know? So you often hear um, electricians say, oh, you can't daisy chain or you can't use a GFCI with another GFCI. That's a damn lie. <laughs> so, fact, so what happens if one of them fail if the first one in the chain fails does the second then one they also both, fail then they both stop working they that's, both stop because yeah, the first one the first one will will prevent current uh voltage from, from getting past the, second, the one. second one exactly yeah exactly but the, but where you've likely used it before if you go to a hotel and they have a hair dryer in the bathroom and if you use the hair dryer these days the cord the plug on the hair dryer oh. is a gfci right right and right. you're plugging that into another to GSI another, and it works just GSI. fine. <laughs> yeah. You know, we've all done it. So I don't know why that. I'm much persists. more one of those. The hair is wet. I put it up until it's dry. <laughs> sort of people. And <laughs> everybody knows too much about how I take care of my hair or don't, <laughs> whichever it may be. <laughs> well, okay. but I do take your point. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Very good. Very good. All right. Okay. All right, so you ready to move we on? We can daisy There's, chain them. You can daisy chain them, and, and we you, don't you don't need, need a ground. ground. All right, you don't need a ground. Okay, one more about GFCIs. Okay, and the statement is, all GFCIs are created equal. Oh well, that's definitely a lie. <laughs> okay, why? Well, I mean, the why I, I don't know. Okay, but I can so, assume that just like everything else, there are quality issues if you get knockoff off-brand GFCIs? Well, what I'm, what I'm referring to specifically is the class of GFCIs. There's, there's, there's ah. different classes, and most people don't know this. But you're right. That's, that's more lies, right? All GFCIs are created equal is a lie. And the fact is that there are class A GFCIs. If you go down to Lowe's or Home Depot and you buy a GFCI off the shelf, they kind mm -hmm. of go in your bathroom or kitchen. It's usually a 20 amp device. That mm -hmm. is a class A device. And that is considered a personnel protection device because it will trip if there's six milliamps of leakage or more. Now, on the other hand, when you set up a portable power generator, you can rent something called a shock block. And those ominous are Ominous name. Not, yeah, right. That's ominous name, <laughs> but go on. <laughs> yeah. The, those are mostly not class A personnel protection devices. Those are either class C, class D, or class E. So a class C GFCI has a trip level of 20 milliamps, 20 milliamps. And then a class D has a um, trip level of 20 milliamps, but a longer delay. And then a class E is a selectable uh, trip level. So you can set it to trip at six milliamps, at 10 milliamps, at 20 milliamps, or 30 milliamps. So if you can change the setting, obviously that's not reliably a personnel protection device. So um, one of the things that I like to, to tell people who don't know a lot about um, electricity and, you know, say, say for example, uh, show producers, you know, show producers sometimes come to my classes or they come to my events and um, they, want to, they want to learn about how to keep their clients safe, how to keep their uh, facilities safe or keep their 
productions safe, how their stages safe, which is important. And I applaud them for that. Right. But one of the things you can do to, to find out, I mean, you're, you're having to rely on other people to set up your portable power distribution. You don't know if these people know what they're doing or not. So if you want to test somebody, if you, if you want to know, is this, is this person, uh, does, do they really know their stuff? Then ask them when, when you, when they're setting up a GFCI, ask them, Hey, what, what class of GFCI is that? And act like, you know, what, what, what it means, what you know, it means. because so, if they say, I don't know, then that tells you something, right? Yeah. So for, for stage use, because, mm-hmm. because the pushback that, that I've always heard is, as you get nuisance tripping and that could right. be, uh, so it looks like those class C, D, or E could technically eliminate some of that because it's a higher threshold. Exactly. Yes. Um, and so is, is that the most, I'm not, I, I don't want to say standard because that implies something different, but is that a, a good thing to consider for an event that, that class C or E? I think it's a great thing to consider. Now, it, it's not, there's no replacement for personnel protection devices because, you know, you're required by code to have class A GFCI if you're in the proximity of moisture water with the electrical circuit. However, mm-hmm. what, as you mentioned, you know, if they start nuisance tripping, people tend to lose their patients and don't use GFCIs at all, which I think is the wrong thing to do. If you have access to a class C or class D GFCI, then in my opinion, it's better than nothing at all. Yeah. Now it's not guaranteed to say, cause a class A will save 99% of the world's population. Now there are people who are more susceptible to electrocution than others like infants and elderly people. But if you have big strapping, healthy adults on stage and the choice is no GFCI protection or a class C protection, I would always choose a class C. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. Yeah. Okay. It's not, Thank you. It's not to code, but, it, but it's better than nothing. Okay. Okay. <laughs> are, are we ready to move on? How much I'm time ready to move on. Left? We're, we're fine. Okay. Okay. So moving on. This is one about circuits in general. Okay. Um, you've all heard this statement before. Current takes the path of least resistance. Is that true or is it a lie? Current takes the path of least resistance. You're really taking so, all this seriously. Yeah, I am. I don't, I don't want to miss one. <laughs> I kind of want to say that. I kind of want to say that's true, but it, I think it's got some caveats. Well, yeah, the, the, exactly. Yeah, you're, you're right. And I like to say it's a lie because, okay. <laughs> because I, th- <laughs> I think it's misleading. You know, if you, if you take it uh, literally, What that means is if you have two parallel paths for current, one has higher resistance, one has lower resistance, then the path of higher resistance gets no current at all because current takes the path of least resistance. resistance. It's like, yeah, it's just like a computer program. It's choosing yes or no. Right. Right. Exactly. That's not how it works. (laughs) The truth is that current takes every available path that it has and it divides in proportion to the amount of resistance in that path. So oh, that's beautiful. And, and, and the reason <laughs> that this is important is because if you touch something, you get a shock. Guess what? You've created a parallel path for current. 
And if it was true that current takes the path of least resistance, you're either all you're going to either get all get the current all or none of the current or none of it because you're or none of it, right? But the fact is, you're going to get some. So, but if you're aware of how that works, then you can better protect yourself because you know that it divides in proportion to the amount of resistance in that path. So you can increase the resistance if you accidentally touch a live conductor by wearing gloves and wearing voltage rated shoes because the, your hands and your feet are the two most common points of contact when you get shocked. Think about it. When was the last yep. time you got shocked? What did you do? You touched something that shocked you. Yep. So if, if you're wearing gloves, you can increase the resistance and decrease the amount of current, which could save your life. Guys, rewind that back a little bit, listen to it again, because that part was really important. Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we'll wait. That's... We'll wait for you to rewind. Yeah, we're waiting. All right, welcome back. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Are, are we ready to move on? We're ready to move on. Okay. Now, um, in a lot of... So I, I do some electrical inspections at some amusement parks and at, and at theaters. And um, this comes from my, a, a lot of my observations at these places. You always see uh, power strips. You often see power strips. And technically they're called relocatable power taps. It took me years to, to figure that out. And that was <laughs> Steve Terry from ETC who, who hit me to that relocatable power taps. But anyway, so, and, and, uh, so the, the statement is, it's okay to connect a power strip to another power strip. Is that true or false? Or is it a lie? Okay, I'm going to say that's a lie, but it's done all the time. <laughs> exactly. It's a damn lie. It's a damn lie, but you see it all, all the, the time. time. <laughs> yeah. And so, and there's nothing in the code that spells out that says you can't, do not plug a power strip into another power strip. But what it does say in the National Electrical Code, and this is probably true worldwide, I'm guessing, is that uh, you have to follow the manufacturer's instructions in the listing of that product. Ooh, and if you don't nice. follow the listing requirements, then you are not uh, in compliance with the National Electrical Code. And so... Um, you have to go back, you have to go to the UL listing, which is in 1363 for relocatable power taps. And it says relocatable power taps, which are power strips, are not intended to be series connected or daisy chained to other relocatable power taps or extension cords. So, and think about that. It's not hard to, it's not hard to understand why that is. You know, if you <laughs> plug a power strip into power strip, you're doubling the number of receptacles. And if you, if you just take a single power strip, single power strip that has, I don't know, uh, five 15 amp receptacles on it, but the whole power strip is connected to a 20 amp circuit. So <laughs> you've got the ability to really overload that power strip if you're not careful. So every time you plug something into power strip, you need to be keeping track of how many amps you think is being drawn by that load. And you need to subtract it from your 15 amps because that's what the power strip maximum is. And if you plug a power strip into power strip, it's going to be that much harder to keep track of <laughs> how much current. And all you have to do, if you want to get an, if you, if, if, if you're still not getting this concept, go online 
and do a Google search for an image of melted power strips oh, and no. you'll see. <laughs> I'm sure yeah. there are many. I've seen some, there are some definitely scorch marks right? and melted and yeah, that's a fun Google yeah. search. Yeah. And then, and then do some research and figure out how many house fires are caused by uh, power strips. And you'll, you'll find you, you know, you will, you may be amazed, but you shouldn't be surprised. Yeah. So, mm. but that's one. So here's another one. Um, it's okay to connect a power strip to an extension cord. You is that just true told or is that me a lie? You just, when you read the code, you said it wasn't. <laughs> Well, what, what it said, <laughs> what it says is not to, not to series connect. Oh yeah, you're right. Okay. RPTs and extension cords. You're right. Okay. Um, but, but I, I kind of argue that that's real life doesn't work. I like it. I'm frustrated with that rule, but that's okay. <laughs> well, as you point out, it's done all the time. It's done all the time. I mean, how else do you get power into the middle of a, performance space well <laughs> well you can you can go to um distributors or manufacturers like lex or uh i don't know who else makes them um but you can get um stringers yeah right? yeah so that's that's how you do that yeah. so power strips are different class different category so it doesn't so, mean it doesn't mean a stringer it means specifically a like off the shelf power strip well, again, you have to, you know, technically you should go and read the, the, yeah, the right. manufacturer's there you go. directions you send for back it, to the directions. Right? Yeah. Cause uh, <laughs> you know, every, you, you, you order something, you get the box, you, who reads the directions? I don't, you know, I pull the thing out and I plug it in. Um, so I, I, we should be reading the instructions, but it says the, uh, the UL listing 13, again, 1363 says relocatable power taps are intended to be directly connected to a permanently installed branch circuit receptacle outlet. So technically plugging it into an extension cord or stinger cable. And, and by the way, what, what do you call them? Stingers or extensions or, cause um, I just moved to New York and they told me not to call them stingers here. We call them singles here. <laughs> you know, so different it's words. It probably de depends on where you are. We, we would call them. Exactly. We would call them an Edison cable. A what cable? Edison. Oh, talking about I the end of the connector, as opposed yeah, yeah, yeah. to yeah. some other no, form. I, th I thought you. I thought you said medicine cable. <laughs> that, that's no, not... that's something different. <laughs> <laughs> right, but no, you're right. Okay, Edison. But anyway, the point is, they're intended to be permanently, uh, directly connected to a permanently installed branch circuit receptacle outlet. Okay. Okay. So. Um, moving on, mm -hmm. let's talk more about uh, cables themselves. Okay. And this statement says all stinger cables or extension cords are created equal. True or false or true, true or, or lie. Oh, that's a damn lie. That's a damn lie. That's a yeah, damn lie. <laughs> cables, cables have different type of insulation and of course, different wire gauges, but Beyond the wire gauge, the, the insulation matters because some are more durable than others. Mm -hmm. So in the theater and in performance areas, we're supposed to use type S as in SAM, but you often see type S J. And the difference is that type S is called extra hard usage cord. Mm -hmm. 
and type SJ's junior hard usage cord. And junior hard uh, cable, um, SJ cable, is not intended to be run along the ground. You should not step on it. You shouldn't run a forklift over it or, or a golf cart over it because it can damage the insulation. And that can lead to shorting and, and, and fire or a uh, shock hazard. Now, having said that, <laughs> every theater <laughs> I've ever been in has type SJ. And, you know, why? Because, um, first of all, I rarely ever see, if ever, I don't think I've ever seen an electrical inspector in a theater before. So we're kind of left to our own devices. And if there were a lot of uh, fires because of it, then there would be more consequences. But, and that is really the risk you take is that if you use SJ and it causes a fire, then because it's a code violation, technically, then the, the insurance company might have um, <laughs> a, a word with you about that. So, so, now, uh, so I have a question about that. Sure. Um, okay. Over the last, I don't know, five to 10 years, as more and more gear has gotten smaller is the wrong word, but it draws electrical, less power. Yeah. Draws less power. Is that less of a, I don't want to say concern. Is it less of a risk? Is there less well, of that overheating? Not, not necessarily because... Okay. Because of the harmonics I mean, it, where we started the conversation? <laughs> no, no, no. Because okay. what we're talking about now is the durability of the insulation. Mm -hmm. So regardless of, of the load, the, uh, the cable is... Uh, so you're talking about physical... Right. Breaking of the cable, not exactly. necessarily a heat. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. So we should be using type S, but type S is more expensive. It's thicker, it's heavier. It's takes up more storage space. So that's why people take shortcuts and ty mm -hmm. use type S J and which is, you know, and I should say that in the latest edition of the national electrical code, the 2020 edition, they said, okay, now it's okay to use type S J up to hundred feet long, not longer in the theater or performance areas. However, it still needs to be supported by some something to prevent it from getting damaged. So you can tie it to a pipe or to a catwalk uh, railing or a truss or something like that. As long as you can't step on it and run over it, you know, then that's that's okay. But but most municipalities are still, there are a few code cycles behind. So mm -hmm. in some cities that's not uh, in effect yet, but it's coming. I have so much to think about now. Okay. <laughs> what else oh, do we have? <laughs> our job. There's a couple more. Okay. okay. One is um, welding cable makes very good feeder cable for live event production. Is that true? Or is that a, is that a lie? <laughs> I know this one. That's a damn lie. Keep, That's your, welding a damn lie. Keep your welding cable out of my building. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. No, welding cable is made specifically for welders and it has a 50% duty cycle. So what that means is that it should only be conducting current for 10 minutes out of every 20 minutes, and then it needs to cool off because the stranding is very fine. That's why it's very flexible and easy to move around, you know, for welders. So yeah, keep your, keep your <laughs> welding cable out of my building. Absolutely. <laughs> Good answer. I didn't have to think about that one at all. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're doing great, Daniel. Okay. Let's see. There's actually two more. Okay. Okay. Um, this one's about portable power generators. 
And, and okay. the statement is portable power generators must be earthed. Is that true or is that a lie? I think that's true. Actually, no. The National no? Electrical Code, right. The National Electrical Code says the frame of a vehicle, uh, for, for vehicle-mounted generators, the frame of the vehicle shall not be required to be connected to a grounding electrode um, under the following conditions, that the frame of the generator is bonded to the vehicle frame and mm -hmm. the generator supplies only equipment located on the vehicle or cord and plug connected equipment through receptacles mounted on the vehicle or, or both equipment located on the vehicle and cord and plug connected equipment through receptacles mounted on the vehicle or on the generator. And number three, the normally non-current carrying metal parts of equipment and equipment grounding conductor terminals of the receptacle are connected to the generator frame. But the bottom line, so let me try to, let me try <laughs> Because to, if I was listening to, to this, I would rewind at this point and listen to that again. So I probably throw it away. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of words. And, and the NEC is famous for throwing out a lot of words. A lot of and words. You have they're, to read it eight words, times. But I'm not and sure they meant. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I do that all the time. Guilty right here. But here's, <laughs> let me, let me try to, um, summarize this for you. Okay. In, in my view, the, um, so, so first of all, um, it really depends on the local municipality because every local municipality has different rules. Sometimes they say you have to drive a grounding rod. Sometimes mm -hmm. they forbid you to drive a grounding rod. If you're in LA County and you randomly pick a spot on the side of the road or, you know, on the sidewalk that, uh, <laughs> and, and ground and, yourself and drive to a, that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, if you if you were to drive a grounding rod, you know, look at think of all the underground infrastructure. There's there's water pipes, there's electrical systems, there's cable, there's there's gas, you could, there's you could sewage. accidentally electrify a lot of <laughs> right, <things. laughs> right, right, right. So they don't want you to drive a grounding rods. You know, certain densely populated areas. You know, then other places they'll tell you, oh yeah, you have to drive a grounding rod. You know, so yeah, I guess but, that's my experience. Is I'm used to the AHJ, the authority having jurisdiction, coming and looking to make sure that sure. The yeah, generator is tied into the yeah. ground. But but there's not always an AHJ, is there? If you're doing um, you know, Burning Man out in the field, there's right. you know, I don't I don't know that a, an AHJ is gonna show up out there. However, you know, the bottom line is the reason we drive grounding rods for, for electrical systems is there's two reasons. Number one is um for a zero volt reference. And because yeah. the earth is at zero volts and that it, you know, if you make, uh, uh, if you drive a rod, it's in good contact with the earth that forces the, the generator to have um, a point that is at zero volts all the time. It doesn't drift. So you get a good stable voltage output, but the, but even without driving grounding rod, a tow package, the, 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 the um, trailer is a big mm -hmm. enough mass to act as a pretty good zero volt reference. So we don't really need to oh. drive a grounding rod to have a decent zero volt reference on a portable power generator. The other reason we drive grounding rods is for lightning protection. Not that it will prevent lightning from striking, but that it gives lightning a low impedance path into the earth. And, but think about this, you know, if, if we drive a grounding rod for lightning protection, does that mean it's okay to run a generator in the presence of lightning? And the answer is no, not <laughs> at all. You, you know, if there's lightning in a six to 10 mile radius, then you should shut the generator down and wait for lightning to pass at least 30 minutes and then you can fire it back up again and you should have a lightning plan. So 
<laughs> left left to your own devices, if you given the choice to drive a, a grounding rod or not, I would say the most important thing is to have a lightning plan <laughs> before you <laughs> before you do anything else. Make sure everybody agrees on what the lightning plan is. So, I, um, I do love a, a weather plan. Uh, absolutely. So, just to go back to your your generator needing a. So there are some power tools that the power supplies uh, in OSHA classes, they teach you if it's got a square around it, uh, self-grounding, I think is the term, but somebody's going to at me about this, about me not remembering the right words. But uh, basically the frame of the tool itself is isolating the user from an electrical okay. shock. Is that the same idea with Let the generator? Is let Jacob going to have to delete you. this whole thing? <laughs> no, no. Let me help you with the term with the term you're looking Thank for. You. What you're looking for is double insulation. Thank so you. So if a, the chassis is plastic, it, it's the, the, the geometry doesn't matter. It could be square, no, no, triangular, it's, it's a code. Circular. It's, a, it's a code. It's a visual code, like a, like a label uh, on uh, the right, tool right, right. Got that it. indicates okay. that the okay. tool has that property. Got it. Yeah, it's it means a shape it's of double a insulated. Yeah. So, it, okay. Got it. <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, I'm glad you asked. Cause maybe now the listeners won't be like, what is she talking about? <laughs> they're probably asking that anyway. That's fine. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, so the, uh, okay. What you're talking about is if the chassis is plastic, that's a mm -hmm. form of insulation plus the wires inside are insulated. So there's double insulation. So that means that if one of the wires breaks and, and rubs up against the chassis, it does not create a shock hazard. Therefore, the, the, the uh, plug does not need to have a grounding pin. It can be a two-pronged pin, like on your computer power supply. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. like my MacBook has a plastic power supply and it's, there's only two prongs on it. There's not the, yep. the, you know, so that's okay. But no, this is a little bit different. This really has to, more to do with working outside and whether or not lightning is going to be an issue. Okay. So that's what that's about. So, okay. so the main purpose of the grounding rod is lightning protection. It's not. That's from one the... of the two main purposes. It's lightning protection and it's zero volt reference. Okay. Okay. All right. I got one that's... more. One more yeah. for you. Let's go. Okay. Um, so this one is about stage electrocution. As you well know, um, mm -hmm. uh, periodically people get electrocuted on stage. It's a sad, mm -hmm. sad occurrence, and it happens. Um, you know with a fair amount of frequency, uh, sad to say, and we're working to raise awareness about it and to prevent it. Uh, yeah. But here's the statement. The statement is, and this, tell me if this is true or if it's a damn lie. The statement is, so far this year in 2022, there have been zero stage electrocutions. I'm pretty sure that's a lie. Sadly, sure a lie. it's a lie. Sadly, it's a lie. Um, in February of 2022, a guy named Luyan Lopez de Aguiar, he was 24 years old. He got a lethal shock when he was tuning his guitar before the band was about to take the stage. Now, it, you know, there's not a lot of details about this because I don't know of anybody who is standing on a stage and, and gets uh, fatally electrocuted by their own guitar without touching something else. So my guess is that he touched a microphone and his electric guitar at the same time and was electrocuted. 
And that is typically how it goes. That's how these stage electrocutions, electrocutions typically happen. And the sad truth is that it's usually due to faulty ground. Sometimes that ground is intentionally lifted for uh, purposes of getting rid of noise that, that's created by ground loops. So that practice has to stop. We have to stop and we have to think about why these accidents are happening, what we can do to prevent them. And hopefully uh, by raising awareness and educating people, training people, not to use ground lift adapters, then we will stop these stage electrocutions. But for now, it's, it, it continues. So we've got to do a better job. Yeah, that is, that is a hard truth. Um, don't ever lift the ground because the ground is protecting someone's, literally protecting someone's life. It's, it's not- just, Absolutely. It's, yeah. it's not there just to inconvenience us. Right. And on that happy note. And on that happy note. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had more now. I should have put a, yeah. a happy one in no, at the that, end. No, that's, you know, if that's a, in some ways that's the most important one because it actually goes to why we talk about all this stuff in the first place is because right. just putting on shows is fun and it's our careers and, and, but there are risks and hazards that can be fatal and it's important that we address them and not intentionally make them worse. Um, yeah. And, and the good news is that our equipment's getting better and yes. it's getting safer, but we, we just have to uh, make sure we don't violate some real basic uh, safety rules like lifting mm -hmm. the ground. And, you know, we, we can also uh, prevent stage electrocutions by using more fiber optic cable, by using more wireless microphones and wireless uh, amplifiers and and wireless connections and so, also by bonding our stages you know when i first learned about bonding a stage like that was another time i was like whoa why did i never know that before probably mostly because i work in an indoor fixed venue uh most of the time that was the first reason why it was on top of mind but the the rest of it was like this is great everyone should know about this um but you also have a so so People always ask, we have this hum, lifting the ground makes it go away. I know that you know of a couple tools that also make it go away. Can you share them with people? Because I always like to have some sort of solution and not just, not sure. just the problem. Yeah, so there's many, um, they're called audio isolation transformers. And it's just a one-to-one -one transformer. Usually it's a three-pin XLR to three-pin XLR barrel with the transformer inside. And the most common one that I've seen is uh, made by a company called Sescom. It's an IL-19. And what it does is it breaks the signal ground, not the safety ground. There's a big difference. The safety ground is in the power cable, this green wire. The signal ground is the shield on the audio cable. And so um, the trick is that there's usually dozens and dozens of audio cables. So you have to know which one to plug it in or you have to try different ones until you get it. And sometimes it might take two or three of these devices, which takes time and it takes patience. And it takes, you, you know, you have to methodically work through the entire system before you can isolate the problem. Mm -hmm. And the, the problem is that people lose their patience and just uh, lift the ground, the safety ground as a shortcut. But that's what puts people's lives at risk. 
in, uh, you know, that's likely what killed this young person in February. And um, I'm pretty sure it's what killed Augustine Briolini in on November 22nd of 2014. And countless other people um, have either been uh, fatally electrocuted or nearly fatally electrocuted. And, you know, th this, it's going to continue until we stop, um, stop lifting grounds. You know, th those little adapters, we call them ground lift adapters. That's not what they are. Those are really grounding adapters, but they're, they're made for those old timey two prong receptacles to accept a three pronged modern day device. But when you, when you use them, you're supposed to uh, unscrew the screw on the faceplate, put it through the green tab on the adapter and then put the faceplate back. And when you plug it back in, you screw the, the, the screw back in. And if you have a metal junction box, and metal conduit now, your modern day device is bonded to the building steel, which will cause a circuit breaker to trip in the event that um, something is short circuiting. So and that's why those little ground lifty things have that little metal tab at the back. And I bet a bunch of people just learned something that they never knew before. <laughs> I, I hope so. That's what it's all about. It's all about, you know, um, understanding what the problem is and understanding yeah, what the solutions abso are. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. So yeah. I know that you have a bunch of classes coming up. Uh, because we are getting out of the bad old times and into the weird new times. <laughs> so mm -hmm. uh, I know uh, I'll just share the first one. Uh, you've got portable power distribution and electrical safety uh, coming up in Austin, Texas in October. Um, right. And actually a lot in Texas. And then you're going to be in our, our great friendly place of Lidditz, Pennsylvania in December. And you're going to be at what's what's in la is that an event is well, that so an every year every year i do a class in la at least before the pandemic so we're, this is we're, <laughs> the, the we're new resuming weird it now yeah. yeah exactly so we usually do um a the same kind of portable power distribution class in uh, in well we've been doing it in burbank but we may do it um in some other um nearby location it's gonna be in that area somewhere so. so, so if if you want to take any of these classes, I highly recommend them. Um, there'll be a link in the show notes, but it's www.aptxl.com/training. Uh, you have anything else that you, coming up that you want to share or talk about? Any new books? I haven't bought a book um, in a while. <laughs> <laughs> no, th so the uh, third edition of the. Uh, electricity for entertainment electricians and technicians came out uh, in 2020, just in time for the pandemic. Uh, <laughs> so hopefully people had time to read it over the pandemic. And I've, I'm kind of uh, have been taking a break. We moved to New York. So that's given me a chance to um, sell all the contents in my house in Austin <laughs> and to get settled in in New York and do a little remodeling. And now we're getting back, you know, work coming back. So we're getting busy again. So um, I haven't thought about but I, well, actually, my publisher wants me to to um, revise my automated lighting book, so that will be the next project. Oh, how exciting! Uh, well, if you guys have any questions uh, about the podcast, about you have a question for Richard, and you want to send it through us, our email address is podcast at eventsafetyalliance.org. Uh, this would be a great time to become a member of the Event Safety Alliance. So go to our website and join up. It's only twenty five dollars, and. I think Richard, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a great conversation. I have 
I have a page full of notes of stuff that <laughs> I remembered or was new to me again or things like that. So thank you for that. Um, it's been stay fun. safe. Thank you, yeah. Danielle. Yeah. Thank you so much. And stay safe out there, everybody.